The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast, uh, sponsored and hosted by The Nation magazine, available wherever you can uh, listen to podcasts. And um, this week, uh, there's two big stories, one of which is the election, uh, but we're recording before the election. And I think it's actually going to be a long week of sorting out what the consequences of all this are. But there's an issue that's kind of related to the election uh, that got a lot of people very worried, which is uh, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter, and then all the kind of shenanigans that he's been doing as the head, including today, uh, basically encouraging people to vote for Republicans. Uh, and what does it mean to have, you know, someone who is, you know, sometimes a bit ideologically nebulous, but certainly is increasingly aligning himself with the sort of center right and sometimes the far right uh, to own a big social media outfit like this, especially since he has a kind of um, ideology of uh, anything goes libertarianism when it comes to speech issues and and uh, is now finding out the difficulty of that uh, when you're running a uh, profit-making uh, media platform uh, and advertisers don't necessarily go along with that. Um, so there's a lot of like issues with, you know, that are going out with um, Musk's purchase of Twitter. And I think one of the best ways to understand this um, is to look at the larger cohort of people that Musk is kind of associated with, this kind of Silicon Valley gang um, uh, that includes uh, Peter Thiel, uh, who's emerged as a you know very big financier of Republican causes, um, and uh, a lesser known figure called David Sachs. And these people are sometimes called the sort of PayPal mafia. They, they were all early in on PayPal, and that's the source of a lot of their wealth. Um, and they have a, um, a sort of certain shared ideas and uh, within a spectrum. I mean, they don't, they're not all the same, but they, they, they cluster around a certain set of ideas. And I think um, one of the best articles I've read about all this uh, appeared in the New Republic uh, by Jacob Silverman, uh, who's a contributing editor of that magazine and author of Terms of Service, um, and often writes about sort of uh, tech issues and is working on a book about crypto. So um, uh, David did a kind of like profile of Sachs and um, explaining his sort of politics and uh, ideological trajectory and uh, the many pies that he has fingers in. Uh, so I wanted to welcome uh, Jacob here. And uh, yeah, let's let's just start with what's the newsy stuff. Uh, what are you making of all this uh, Elon Musk uh, 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 hijinks on Twitter? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's certainly entertaining. I mean, and, and I mean, it can cycle between entertaining and a little disgusting and a number of other things. There's there's a it's also laced with a lot of absurdity, but uh, it's hard not to at this stage, I think, um, get the sense that Musk is in way over his head. I mean, we knew he didn't really want to go through with the with the deal and was basically sued to make the deal happen. The price was pretty high. His uh, He's obviously extremely rich, maybe the wealthiest man in the world, but his whole empire is, is dependent on Tesla stock. If he dumps too much Tesla stock, the price uh, goes with it. And that's already been happening. So he he's, he's not as a sort of liquid or as financially independent as you might think for someone who's worth 200 billion dollars or however much it supposedly is uh, and i think now that he's jumped in the deep end and immediately fired a lot of people at the company about 50 percent and surrounded himself by yes men and his buddies uh, he's running into all these challenges um, the other thing i think just sort of contextually or maybe 
culturally even that that's might be worth pointing out is you know he's always been a public facing businessman and sort of this carnival barker huckster type but and obviously talks interfaces with the public a lot and and has been a salesman for for his own companies for tesla and for spacex but it does seem like twitter is a step forward in really having to listen to people i mean he responds to random people on twitter a lot of them are right wingers or right wing influencers but he he does at least have to hear more from people and ostensibly has some public that he's more beholden to and i think we're seeing in this for these first couple of weeks how he just can't handle that yeah no i mean and it's a bizarre situation that he set up because he basically fired the board and is like you know the only person running this like a company that's supposedly worth that he you know paid uh in excess of 40 billion dollars for now it is not a normal thing for a 40 billion dollar company to have like uh no board of governors and just one person in charge right like that's the yeah I mean, I'm, not, I'm not a big business guy but that's <laughs> odd to me I mean, I think it's pretty strange, certainly that he I mean, even just the fact that he made himself CEO, we kind of take it for granted that he has all these roles and is this multi or this heavily diversified industrialist. But this is his third CEO title. Um, I, I thought it was a little ridiculous, actually, when Jack Dorsey, who I have a lot of criticisms of, was was CEO of two companies of, of Block or Square, as was previously known, and of Twitter at the same time. But um, yeah, I, I think he he's quickly in over his head and. He he doesn't seem to have much trust in any of the incumbent staff. There's a guy named Uel Roth, who's a, a sort of policy uh, guy there, who he seems to uh, decide to have kept him around. But he he's fired most of the senior executives, the entire board. And it's really just him and a few of his buddies. And I think that is pretty unusual, no matter how much house cleaning you might expect or sort of private equity style cost cutting. The fact that he said that they need to cut a billion dollars and expenses uh, with some focus on basically infrastructure and facilities and things like that seems like a real problem. I mean, we know he owes a billion dollars per year in interest on this deal. And if you start immediately cutting basically the people keep, keeping the servers running, they're going to run into problems pretty soon, I think, uh, at least from my somewhat limited technical understanding. So, you know, it's being done very sloppily, the the clear cutting of, of employees. And, and we know that some people were even asked to come back after being laid off. So I, I just don't see how it really gets better from here, at least in the short term. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and I mean, it's hard. maybe like some people are positing that there's some sort of a game of 11 dimensional chess that uh, simple people can't understand. But they're just like some very basic things that like look like not good um, behavior in terms of running a company. One of which you mentioned is firing a lot of people and then realizing that you need some of them and trying to hire them back. Um, and the other is this sort of very mixed message in terms of advertising and free speech, um, which I think like uh, there's an article by uh, uh, Naile Patel in The Verge, which I think really caught at this. Um, but I mean, the basic fact is that the main way that Twitter has made money is through advertising and advertisers want a safe space for their brand, uh, which means, you know, like, let's keep the Nazis and pornography to a minimum. Uh, but then Musk has this kind of like, you know, ideological commitment to free speech. And his whole reason for buying Twitter was like, he thought that there was too much content moderation and there were certain right-wing sites that uh, had gotten banned. And so what we see now is that he goes back and forth 
between on the one hand writing letters to advertisers saying you know like we will um uh, don't worry this will not become a hell site there will be moderation and then like doing stuff like uh initially from right at the start like you know tweeting out a conspiracy theory that nancy pelosi's uh, husband was attacked by a qanon uh supporter allegedly uh that this was actually like a gay triest and you know spreading a conspiracy theory of that kind or Today, like, you know, like making jokes about a rival company, uh, Mastodon, uh, comparing it to masturbation. Like, I don't think like if one is like, you know, let's say, you know, a blue chip company like uh, General Electric. I, I don't know if this is going to be like a reassuring thing that the CEO of this company who has no board of governor is like, you know, tweeting stuff out like that. I, am I missing something? Is there, is there like a <laughs> to this matter? I don't see a larger plan. I mean, I think we could see even by his tweets that he's he's learning on the fly. And and especially with things like content moderation, he may be, it seems like he's learning that it's it's a little more complicated than just, a, oh, free speech. Uh, um, you know, there are actual legal issues there. Uh, and there's the, the advertiser issue. Uh, I saw some interesting reporting saying uh, that there are sort of, that, that online advertising has upfronts sort of like television does where, uh, you you present your product to to or your platform to advertisers and hopefully they sign on early on to promise to give you millions of dollars. And Elon has already scared off a lot of the advertisers as you were describing, and that upfront uh, period apparently was a disaster. So they're already seeing or expecting a lot less revenue for advertising, and that's why I think also you're just seeing all these features thrown at the wall, and then the eight dollar thing for for Twitter Blue or for some sort of Twitter verification. But he, he seems to be vacillating between or sort of oscillating between the guy who's never uh, really heard no and someone who's starting to learn that maybe he'll have to occasionally humble himself or bow to some practical realities on the business side. And I, I, that seems to kill him. Uh, in terms of also some of his attitudes, I do think he, he's sort of by default somewhat right wing, but I don't think he's very ideological. I think he's surrounded by right wingers. And I think he's just sort of, generally opportunistic so uh you're you're right the free the free speech thing was was sort of a, a banner on, under which people could rally and his fans could support him but of course now in practice we see that it's a lot more complicated than some some maximalist vision or even just you know we've gotten to a weird place where buying advertising is uh, corporate advertising is seen as a some form of free speech or it needs to be uh, compulsory almost in order to protect Elon's free speech or something like that. So we've gotten into a very weird muddled and crisscross versions of what free speech might even be. Yeah, yeah. Now, and what's actually seeing sort of Republican political figures, uh, including a former staffer, Mitch McConnell, saying that, like, you know, advertisers who don't advertise on Twitter might have to be dragged before congressional investigation, which, like, to my mind, I, I can't. Uh, you know, I, I can't, it, it's such a weird um, uh, place for a libertarian ideology, uh, purported libertarian ideology to end up at. Um, but uh, maybe a free speech is a way to like get your story in the sort of the broader context of like, this is group of people uh, that Musk has surrounded himself with. And, and I think you're right that uh, to think of it, not in terms of 
this guy's an ideologue. It's not like it's not like he like you know uh, read Murray Rothbard and a light bulb went over his head and then he said I'm going to be like this. It, yeah, a lot of ideologies form through social connection, and there is a kind of I think uh, your article shows very well that there's a kind of cohort of guys who you know came together at Stanford in the early 1990s um, in a context in which there was a lot of debate about. Um, what was called political correctness and multiculturalism. I, I think some of the older listeners will remember that this is like a big topic of national conversation. And these uh, uh, people there, like Peter Thiel, um, who studied there and um, and some of his uh, buddies, um, uh, you know, first came to a kind of consciousness or defined themselves in that background. Do you want to, do you want to like take up that story? Absolutely. So uh, before there's the PayPal mafia, really, uh, in the late 90s, in the early 90s, some of these same people uh, were at Stanford, Peter Thiel, um, Keith uh, Raboy, and David Sachs, uh, in particular, and some other folks who would eventually pass through this, this network that Thiel would establish. And I think in the early 90s at Stanford, uh, there was at least this faction of conser- of young conservatives who were starting a sort of counter-revolution or at least a little uh, reactionary movement. Uh, They didn't like the multiculturalism and and political correctness of of the era. And they also didn't really like the Stanford's uh, kind of legacy uh, of the 60s and of hippie culture, which was still somewhat in the air or even in the form of professors there who had been there, things like that. Um, So for Teal, especially, I think it was very ideological, and he he started a magazine called the Stanford Review. He brought together sort of like-minded people. Uh, he he wrote one of his co- his main co-writer for a while was this guy David Sachs, who ended up being the first uh, COO of PayPal. And Sachs and Teal became writing partners essentially and friends, and they wrote articles for the Stanford Review. As I mentioned in my article, they had something called the Rape Issue. I mean, rape and sexual politics were a big issue on campus at Stanford at the time. There was an incident where uh, uh, a student commit was found guilty, or I believe pled no contest to statutory rape. And Sachs somewhat infamously called, essentially minimized statutory rape as somewhat as kind of a relic of a Victorian era or something like that, that shouldn't be a crime. And one thing you really do see in, in their writing, they did this rape issue in which they defended that that student. Um, of the, That's an issue of the Stanford Review. And then in this book, The Diversity Myth that came out in, in 1995, they, they seem to really chafe against uh, both liberalized sexual mores and the fact that, you know, sexual assault and rape is was being seen somewhat differently and not just simply, uh, you know, a violent act where uh, a male uh, assaults a female and she says no, things like that. There, there's more to it, of course. Um, and that people can, for example, recognize that they have been assaulted or raped after the fact. That was something that they made fun of in, in their writing. Um, so I, I think that's the general sort of culture that they were, they were stewing in. And I think from early on, some of them were very committed to it. And it also blended with this idea that uh, free speech was possibly under attack and that you needed to protect it by being outrageous. And uh, there were definitely some examples of that, too, even just the fact that they wrote this rape issue. Uh, You know, in one interview I did, someone said maybe the nearest analog of the time kind of at a higher level or nationally was like Pat Buchanan. I mean, they show some 
some signs of early cultural warriors and even of paleo-con attitudes towards foreign policy? Huh. Yeah, no, I, I um, yeah, the Buchanan um, uh, comparison is interesting, but I was also thinking more just in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the 1990s sort of shock jock culture, you know, like uh, yeah. Clay and, you know, being offensive for the sake of being offensive. Absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, I think well, you, in your article, you mentioned, you know, this kind of infamous example of um, one of these guys, uh, is Keith Raboy, who kind yeah. of went into the square and uh, at Stanford and was just yelling out hugely homophobic things. Um, and the argument was that he wasn't doing it out of a homophobic ideology, uh, but to, uh, uh, he claimed he was showing it to like illustrate freedom. Like, you know, this is what yeah. you could get away with. Yeah, he and, and a couple other people... Uh basically heckled a, a lecturer with some homophobic slurs and they wished death upon him. They said, hope you die of AIDS and some other things like that. Um, I, I actually think a lot of this is, is really um, sort of has echoes of today and kind of the, the trolling attitude we see online and, and the form of, of testing boundaries. Uh, so basically nothing, there was a huge outcry, of course, um, at this incident. Raboy la later came out as gay, but of, of course, uh, as did Teal, but people who are closet can certainly commit homophobic acts. Um, I think there was more than just the sense of shock that people would say these things, but there was no actual formal uh, effort to punish him. He became I, fairly infamous. There was a lot of protests and kind of, as I write my article, campus struggle sessions where people, I think in some cases, were sincerely debating uh, issues of sexism and bigotry on campus and in and in San Francisco institutions. I mean, this was a time when you'd have a lot of like themed housing for uh, different uh, subcultures or eth or ethnic groups, uh, and and a lot of sort of deliberate gestures to of embracing uh, different cultures and and a multicultural identity. And they had a problem with that. Um, but Raboy uh ended up transferring nothing happened the school basically reprimanded him but said what you did was completely protected speech but we didn't like it but okay let's move on and then he went transferred to harvard law and he did perfectly fine for himself he was also a member of the paypal mafia bet mgm has an unreal deal for sports fans in virginia turn five dollars into 150 dollars instantly when you place your first wager at bet mgm simply download the bet mgm app and sign up using code champion 150 then Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Um, so the, the one thing I think that you see more in this 
early Stanford era that you don't necessarily see now among the same people. I think you see a lot of the same kind of why are you offended uh, trolling ethos and, and sort of maximalist idea of speech. But also back then they were very explicit that they thought Western civilization was at stake or sort of being eroded by, you know, progressive forces. And so you see the same thing today with, with uh, objections to wokeism or woke culture and certainly from some of the pe- fellow travelers on the internet who, who think that Western civilization itself is at stake uh, or somehow uh, being undermined. Uh, but you don't necessarily hear someone like Sachs or Thiel speak of Western civilization. But I think the language about wokeism today is very similar to the, to the kind of objections they were raising in, in the early 90s. Yeah, no, there definitely seems to be a real sort of continuity um, uh, with that. And... Um, I think one of the interesting things uh, with that as well is that um, it was also maybe a way to um, make a pitch to some people who are liberals and even on the left, you know, like, you know, like free speech as a value. Um, And I think that that's a very, in the case of Sachs in particular, that's a kind of continuity because one way you can look at this guy is, you know, he's pretty much a standard Republican, like, you know, gives money to a lot of Republicans, sometimes gives money to conservative uh, centrist. Democrats like Hillary Clinton and Kristen Cinema, but I mean, the, if you were a rich person, of course you would do that. You want to keep the Democrats as uh, conservative as possible. Um, but standard, but but he, uh, despite being a standard Republican, it seems like a lot of his time and energy is invested in trying to get people from the left uh, to entice them um, uh, uh, towards a more conservative position on things like speech, and I think. Um, uh, something your article brings up on crime. Um, so do you want to like talk about that, like like where the issue of crime has become much more salient, uh, uh, for particularly Sachs, um, and then then maybe also say something about like the kind of the pitch that is being made to people on the left. Yeah, I think this is where you definitely see some crossover today. Um, however, you might want to define it. I'm not really a big horseshoe theory guy, but you know there is an appeal being made, and I think some common cause between. People who may once who who may still consider themselves on the left, but have some sort of disenchantment with uh, the Democratic Party, which is often very understandable. But there's a sense that crime is out of control in in America's urban cores, and that kind of and that Democratic governance has failed in terms of the Democratic Party, and maybe even liberalism itself. That too much uh, attention has been paid to identity politics and kind of superficial issues, and not enough to core public safety measures. Um, you know, it's it's a kind of add to that is fairly draconian that considers that, you know, is pretty is certainly dismissed is at least occasionally pays lip service to uh, criminal justice reform, but rarely seems to believe in it. And that um, is also part of the criminalization of homelessness um, that, has, that it's sort of uh, it's certainly intertwined with that, which has happened in Southern California and other places across the country, the uh, encampments being made illegal and things like that. So uh, and this now default association of homelessness and open air drug use and things like that, that's especially prevalent in San Francisco um, with crime itself, even though homeless people are often the actual victims of crime. So I think that if part of it stems from this general political frustration, disenchantment with the Democrats, um, and also just a, a refusal, I suppose, to look sometimes at homeless people and crime uh, as people and to, and to embrace other alternatives to 
homeless policy besides just arresting them or clearing them out of the way. But that is, I think, a point where a lot of people have landed at, certainly on the right. And I think some people uh, among liberals are the left. And you see this online. And, I, I, you know, I mentioned some names and Sachs runs a website called Colin, which is a, 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 a podcast platform. And some of the people you hear on there or people like Anna Kasparian on The Young Turks has talked about this a fair amount. Uh, even her boss, uh, Cenk Uyghur, ha has said he wanted to vote for Rick Caruso in L.A., and a lot of this seems to be driven by this fact of, you know, politics has failed, but especially on this level of crime and us law abiding citizens aren't really being taken care of by Democratic politicians. And, you know, this really came to a head over the summer with uh, Chesa Boudin, the, the progressive DA of San Francisco. And Sachs became a major funder of the recall. It was basically, a, I'd say, a coalition of of tech reactionaries, very wealthy tech reactionaries and big developers in San Francisco. Some of these people like Sachs have been involved in the previous school board recall or in the attempted recall uh, of, um, uh, excuse me, of Gavin Newsom, the governor. And, and Sachs were actually uh, was a backer of the recall of Gavin Newsom, which which failed, but also of Schellenberger, the, the opponent who was very vocally and kind of hysterically anti-homeless. Um, so, what you have is all this this money flowing into not not just well you well you have two things you have the money flowing in from people like Sachs and some of these property developers into these recall efforts and kind of efforts to stymie criminal justice reform and to paid homelessness and drug use as the real issues, and then simultaneous with that you have shifts in the media you have things like the website Colin Sachs's own popular podcast which is called All In uh, it's not really hosted on Colin but sometimes he does things on there. And then people who have been hired either under the call and umbrella or other places who you hear echoing some of these same points and which play very well on social media, I think, because it's easy to to sort of say that people it's another version of soft on crime rhetoric and things like that. And there are always uh, videos or inflammatory tweets to, to pass around to kind of prove one's point. And with Sachs himself, I guess uh, to put a little pin in it. I mean, he was very vocal about Chase Abudi and he called him the killer DA. Uh, he was pretty right wing in his approach. He basically said Boudin didn't care about crime victims and was responsible for people's deaths. And he also said things like that the influx of fentanyl into San Francisco was China's payback for the opium war. So there's almost a conspiratorial uh, kind of MAGA tinge to him. And he's very serious about this stuff and does, has done a lot of media appearances about it, besides obviously putting a lot of money towards it. Yeah, no, uh, uh, and it uh, aligns very well with the sort of Republican Party of now because I think the, you know the two big issues that Republicans are running on um, are inflation and uh, crime in the midterms. And I would actually, I mean, it looks like from some um, of the advertising uh, money that's out there, they actually had more ads about crime than anything else. Um, but there's a kind of also a trajectory that um, Sachs and Teal have kind of had from. Uh, a kind of libertarianism, which, as you mentioned, even in the 1990s, had a kind of Pat Buchanan tinge because it was sort of cultural worry, but still presented itself as libertarian. And now towards the politics, there's much more uh, openly socially conservative, you know, like on the, um, and much more embracing things like sort of nationalism uh, and a sort of tough approach on crime. And, uh, and 
again, even stuff that uh, some people on the left might agree with uh, in terms of foreign policy, wanting a more, you know, uh, restrained American foreign policy. Um, so, 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 I mean, it does seem like um, the Buchanan connection that you made uh, with the 1990s has, has become even stronger. Like, yeah, uh, it's a lesser part of my article, frankly, because I started this summer uh, before Sachs was talking about Ukraine as much or became as known for his opinions on Ukraine. And I was also more focused on kind of domestic politics and, and where he's putting his money. But certainly he's become a very vocal figure in the media and on Twitter recently about uh, Ukraine and wanting to negotiate with Russia. But I think besides the fact that a lot of people aren't comfortable with negotiations, I, I, I would like to see some negotiations between the two sides. But, you know, the, the problem that a lot of people express is that he's basically adopted what's seemingly a, a pro-Russian position, like that Russia should be given Crimea, which for many people is a non-starter. Um, so he's open. he openly uses phrases like America first and does certainly have a nationalist element. And, and this attitude that you see on, on the MAGA right of why should we be spending money on a conflict that's far away that probably in the end is not going to c concern us or reach North American shores. Um, on the other hand, he leaves very little room, I'd say, for you know, other approaches besides his own. And he's the kind of guy because he's constantly online and has so many followers that he thinks he's always being attacked by the woke mob. You know, he wrote this article for the New Republic that started as a tweet, but was about how the we were going to have woke war three, which makes you wonder what the first two world wars were. Were they woke wars? I don't know. It's just a very strange approach, but it's basically, you know, I think there's something that people actually go through just on a personal level when they become popular social media figures that like when they first start getting besieged by a lot of replies and maybe they don't know how to handle it or they're still checking all their mentions so it's for him it's always the woke mob is trying to shut him down and this dovetails with the censorship idea actually and, and the attack the attacks he sees on speech but really you know i i think a lot of people are more either they disagree with his politics or it's maybe the attitude that he sort of deputized himself as secretary of state um <laughs> which is what you see some of these also these tech guys doing right now, which, um, you know, anyone's allowed to voice their political opinions. Great. And, and sort of try to enter the fray on Twitter and which is obviously very messy, but the self-seriousness that's applied and the fact that they, he sort of seems to see his experience as either universal or just the sole prism through which to view this stuff. Um, I, I think that's where, where some of these problems come from and where he runs up into these limitations and why he's so upset about the woke mob. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And th that's perhaps the through line that, you know, comes from the 1990s to now, like of uh, sort of, you know, positing some sort of like uh, politically correct, multicultural or woke. I mean, it's all interchangeable, but that that is the sort of posited enemy. Uh, on the foreign policy stuff, I, I do want to mention, you know, I think, like you, I you know, like I would want to see negotiations um, uh, on Russia. I think there has to be some. Uh, uh, that's the war is going to end with negotiations, one way or the other. Um, I'm a little bit dubious about people who already want Ukraine to give up stuff. Like I don't think that's how, I don't think that's how you go into negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> like like they immediately say you're going to give up Crimea. Uh, right. But but beyond that, I mean, one reason I'm wary about people uh, like Sachs and Thiel on foreign policy is um, the, uh, they, 
the whole theory that they're operating behind is that one needs to uh, make some sort of peace with Russia because the real enemy is China, and that we have to prepare for like you know the uh, 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 great powers conflict in Asia. And I think that uh, for people on the left, you kind of need to be wary of a kind of America first politics uh, that uh, you know tries to um, perhaps uh, have negotiations on one front uh, only to gear up for war on another. So, I I agree. I mean, you'll you'll see Sachs and people like him uh, deriding neocons who certainly brought us 20 years of disastrous war and foreign policy that we're still living with. But at the same time, he's openly very anti-China, almost to the point of xenophobia. I mean, he called Democratic politicians useful idiots for the Chinese Communist Party in that in one of these Megyn Kelly appearances where he was talking about fentanyl. Um, so. It, it's hard not to see that uh, as its own form of, uh, yeah, they're preparing for another conflict, which actually other parts of the foreign policy establishment support. Um, so yeah. he's not necessarily so independent in, in that way either. Um, and you don't really get a sense. The problem also, I think, with the, his form of America first is that there there isn't really a counterpoint for okay so what are you going to do at home how are you going to you know he he claims he's a populist but it's a classic false populism uh, of um of the right in recent years which is no real they they say oh democrats have dropped the ball on making people's lives better and paying attention to material issues and economics and stuff partially true but they have nothing to go beyond that except uh general sort of anger and disgust of the status quo so or something like J.D. Vance's weird natalism where somehow women are going to be paid maybe a little bit to stay at home and have babies or something like that. But, you know, they're not going to rebuild the welfare state or uh, or much less our infrastructure or things like that here at home. And you don't really hear suggestions to that effect. So that that is why um, I, I see the political program as, as pretty incoherent in some ways. Um, you know, we know where they stand, perhaps on Ukraine. But as you point out, there is this running degree of militarism and opposition versus China. We have to win against China, the future, whatever that might be. And then again, this sort of neglect at home where sometimes somehow if you just sort of unshackle the police, uh, things will work out. Yeah, no, no that's right. And I, I think one uh, uh, takeaway from your article is that sort of uh, politics of pure negativism, that uh, these are people who are very clear about what they're against and not necessarily have a program for what they're for. Um, uh, as I said, this is the week of the midterms. We'll see how the politics of all this plays out. There's certain candidates that uh, Peter Thiel and Sachs have both kind of lined behind, like uh, J.D. Vance. Uh, well, I think it's, it's a pretty good shot in Ohio. It's a very, it's become a kind of very red state. Uh, but I mean, there are others like Blake Masters and uh, that, that we will see. But um, I think what beyond the midterms, I, I think that this sort of politics is not going to go away. And I think you're right in emphasizing that there are ways in which um, it aligns with more mainstream politics. And what's already seen that with the sort of Ukraine-Russia stuff, where there's a poll like half of Republicans now say that, you know, they're worried that America is spending too much money on Ukraine. Um, and uh, that's the perfect sort of, you know, America first approach to these issues. And so that seems to be gaining leverage. And certainly there are um, the desire for war with China is something that would put them in alignment, not just with the sort of um, right of the Republican Party, but unfortunately, with a lot of centrists, including those in the White House. Uh, so, so, and I think this general anti-wokeness also is a, um, you know, it's a type of rhetoric that one sees 
uh, you know, not just in the sort of Pat Buchanan's of the world, but increasingly in the New York Times and the mm -hmm. Atlantic Monthly. So, so, so there is a kind of um, uh, a politics here that can have a wide political resonance, uh, and and that might be a, a place to end it on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Like where this could uh, go? I, I agree. I, I mean, I think my piece ends with with Sachs saying that he wants to replicate the Boudin recall model across the country. I mean. My question is really, can it scale? Um, I, I, but I do think that a lot of people share a general disenchantment with, with the Democratic Party. That's understandable, or at least the ability of anyone to govern. And some of this kind of social media born rage can be channeled towards the causes that, you know, tech reactionaries like Sachs, I think, want. So I'm not saying it, it will necessarily sweep all of the, the right wing or Republican Party or even the nation. But this is something we're going to be contending with. I totally agree, especially as um you know people search for alternatives i think to trumpism the one last thing i would say is these guys right now are basically throwing their support behind DeSantis, or at least whatever alternative they can find to trump i mean in 2024 if trump's the guy they'll probably go with him but um they're they're looking for a strategy and trying to form one i think so they're not going away especially as they take ownership of media platforms like twitter yeah no i, I think that's a good uh point to end on and yeah it is the larger structural reality is you know, this kind of real problem of governance that we've seen, you know, like not just like with Biden and with Trump, but, you know, going back many years, combined with the fact that, you know, we have a kind of plutocracy with it, with it is a wealthy cohort uh, of like almost unlimited funds to push their agenda. So I, I think the two combinations of a governance crisis and a plutocracy are uh, have a potential to take us to some very bad places, but, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. but, but in any case, I want to thank uh, uh, Jacob for, uh, uh, for uh, being here. Uh, great conversation. Uh, I'll link to the article, encourage people to read that and to read uh, his other writing and uh, looking forward to the, uh, the book on crypto. Thanks so much. I enjoyed this. Mm -hmm.